our scripture passage. It's in Romans chapter 12, verse 11 this morning. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12, the first verse. The first verse of the 12th chapter of Romans. In the first chapter of Romans, after Paul, as we've talked about this, has chapter after chapter on great biblical truths and doctrines, now Paul gives an appeal to us to live those, our lives in accordingly, to consecrate our lives to God. And so he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, I urge you, I, I beg you. He ended the, the 11th chapter with an amen. It's almost like Paul is down on his knees still. He's been praying to God. And then he says, I urge you, I beg you. And then he gives us the motivation, the motive for why we should consecrate and can consecrate our lives to God, to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to him. Why would we want to do this? Paul says it's on account of God's mercies, his mercy. The motive, the motivation for living out the Christian life, our motivation for obeying God, for living for God, for serving God, living a holy and godly life before him, as, is that we are recipients of God's mercy. So I want you to turn for a moment to the 116th Psalm. Psalm 116, we read this for our offertory scripture this morning. Psalm 116, verse 12. This is, this is one of my favorite offering scriptures. The psalmist says in verse 12, or actually he asks in verse 12 of Psalm 116, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? The word translated render means to repay. Literally, to return. What shall I give God in return? What shall I give to him? How can I pay God back? That's what the psalmist is asking here for everything he's done for me. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are recipients of his multiple mercies. In Christ Jesus, God has given us all kinds of innumerable benefits. What can I give back to God for what he has done for me? And what the psalmist is saying, I can't think of thing one. <laughs> that would be equal to what God has done for me. Well, fortunately, God doesn't expect us to pay equal in return. So motiva motivated by all of God's benefits toward him, the psalmist says, okay, this is what I can do. Verse 13, I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his his people. I like that. The, the psalmist says, I want to do this in the presence of God's people. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do right now this morning. I want us to share vocally with one another what God has done for you. So let's take some time to tell one another what God has done for us. What are some of the mercies that he has bestowed upon you? It can be in the form of a praise. It can be in the form of a thanks. It might even be a brief testimony. What is it? You tell me, what has God done for you? Chapter Romans, beginning at verse 9, we have a long list of 25 admonitions in what it takes or what it means to live by the Lord. And remember, the motivation for these are the tender mercies of God. And that's what we have shared this morning. What Christ has done for us, everything, all that Christ ha has done for us. 
And he's saying this is what love looks like in relation to that. Love is the subject of all these admonitions. If we love one another as Christ has loved us, which is just one of the many of God's mercies, that God loved us, that Christ died for us, this is what our love looks like. Being at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And then the verse we're going to be looking at this morning. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. When you are motivated by the mercies of God that we have shared this morning, what God has done for us, this is how it's going to be manifested in our lives. First of all, Paul writes here in verse 11, love does not lag behind in diligence. The words translated lagging behind literally means to shrink back, to be timid. I don't know how many of you were shy and timid as a child, but I was always at the back of the room. We'd rather have my face to the wall than my face to the room. You understand that. But this word is also translated lazy. Oh, great. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus used the word to describe the lazy slave who didn't bother to invest his master's money that had been entrusted to him, but he buried it in the ground until the master returned. And that lazy slave put his own convenience above that of the master. So when the master returned, he said to the lazy slave, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not snow, sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least put the money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received money back with interest. And the same word in the, the Greek version of the, the Old Testament in Proverbs chapter 6 is used, or translated as sluggard, who needs to go to the ant to consider its hard work in storing up food in summer and winter. And so Paul is saying here, love is not like the sluggard who lags behind, he says, but it's in diligence. And that word diligence there means to hurry or to hasten. And Paul's already used that word in, in verse 8 of this 12th chapter where he said, he who leads, how does he lead? With diligence. Remember we said when we talked about the gift of leadership, you can't lead from behind, you're out front. It's haste, it's hurry. There's a sense of urgency with it. And although he doesn't use the same word in, 1 Corinthians, or in Galatians chapter 6, he says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Or after describing at length the truth of Christ's resurrection and the certainty of our resurrection, Paul concludes 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so diligence refers to whatever we do as believers in our supernatural living. Having been indwelt by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit, serving one another with our spiritual gifts, motivated by God's mercies, whatever we do, we do with diligence. In other words, whatever is worth doing in the Lord's service is worth doing with enthusiasm, it's worth doing with care, and it has a sense of urgency to it. Get with it. You know, a couple of times I've said the last couple of weeks, I remember what uh, Bill Baird used to say, you know, Joyce's husband, because he'd be out working with the guys and he'd say, daylight's a-burning, daylight's a-burning. I don't know if Bill knew how biblical that was, because Jesus told his disciples 
that he must do the works of him who sent him as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. We have to get with it. Urgency. So Paul admonished believers in the Galatian churches. So then while we have the opportunity, in other words, we won't always have the opportunity. While we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. And then secondly, he says, love is fervent in spirit. Verse 11 again, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. With diligence, it pertains mostly to action, what we do, why we do it and how we do it and getting it done. Fervent in spirit refers to attitude, to attitude. It's the attitude that we maintain. In fact, the word translated fervent here literally means to boil, to boil. Now, this is not like boiling with anger or boiling, boiling with rage or that kind of thing. It's not to be overheated or boiling over or out of control, but it's more like a steam engine of having sufficient heat to produce the energy necessary to get the work done. So Paul here is describing a holy zeal or passion for God and his kingdom purposes. Uh, J.C. Ryle describes this godly attitude this way. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. So Paul isn't describing somebody here who needs to be arm-twisted into volunteering for some ministry till he finally feels guilty and can't figure a way out, so he grudgingly says, okay, I'll do that. You know, this holy zeal can be seen in a man by the name of Jim Elliott. Some of you will remember him. Jim Elliott, he was martyred, or martyred in Ecuador at age 28 in his attempt to take the gospel to the fierce Aka Indians. And he was a man who embodied godly zeal. If you haven't read his story, you can read it in, in Elizabeth Elliott's, his wife's book. It was called Through Gates of Splendor. Remember that? Which tells the story of all five men who were murdered. And Elizabeth Elliot told her the time that when Jim was still a student at Wheaton College in Illinois, he was zealous to get out on the mission field. He could hardly wait. He wanted to get on with God's work. But as Jim prayed about it, he came to this godly conclusion that he wrote in his journal, in his diary. He said, wherever you are, be all there. Isn't that great? Wherever you are, be all there. And he continued, live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, when he was a young man, Jonathan Edwards was the pastor that used, was used greatly in the Great Awakening. And when he was a young man, he wrote 70 resolutions. <laughs> this is what, a, you know, he also wrote 26,000 pages of, bo of books that are on my, my Kindle. But uh, he wrote 70 resolutions. And number six was, Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Both men were saying, don't be indifferent about the Lord and his cause. Be fervent in spirit. Now you might be thinking, well, you know, that's fine for those type A get out there in front people, these naturally zealous people that always seem excited about things, but I, I'm not that type. I'm too laid back to be fervent in spirit, as you're describing. But this isn't a matter of personality types. It's a matter of attitude. Paul writes this to the whole church in Rome. It applies to every personality type. 
It applies both to young people and to the old, older people. I was going to say old people, but that didn't quite sound right. To older people. It's a matter of passion, <laughs> of what gets you excited, because no matter what your personality type, some things get you excited. Kansas City Chiefs, until I found out there was a San Francisco 49ers fan this morning. I kind of knew that. But, <laughs> but whether it's politics or sports or music or nature or cooking or your job or your family, your hobbies, hunting or fishing, you're passionate about something, aren't you? And as we track this with the mercies of God that we have shared with one another this morning, this is the way that Pastor Stephen Cole expressed what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ and the gospel should make your spirit boil. The good news that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners should excite you. The glorious fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord should stir your heart. Let the many mercies of God that rescued you from, rescued you from condemnation fuel the fires of passion for Christ and his kingdom. Don't be lukewarm about such wonderful truths. Be fervent in spirit as you serve the Lord. And then Paul adds in verse 11 of Romans chapter 12, love is serving, verse, yeah, verse 11 chapter 12, love is serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Three words, but these three words are packed with some important practical truths. First of all, all of us as believers are called on to serve the Lord. All of us are servants of the Lord. Paul wrote this to the entire church at Rome, half of who or more were probably slaves. In the Roman Empire, half the population were slaves. For a lot of reasons, they, they were slaves. Some of them were just captured in warfare and those kind of things. And, and, and so he's writing this to even people who are slaves of another master in an earthly sense. It's not just so-called full-time Christian workers that Paul is writing to here. We are to be serving the Lord in some capacity. And we saw this as we studied the spiritual gifts in verses 4 through 8 of this 12th chapter of Romans, where, where Paul develops the analogy of the church as the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ, and every part of the body is, is valuable. Every part of the body is essential and useful to the overall functioning of the body. Every believer, every one of us has been given spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And secondly... We serve the Lord as slaves, not as volunteers. We serve the church as volunteers, but we serve the Lord as slaves. And in Romans chapter 12, right here in these few verses, Paul uses three different words to describe Christian service. Up in verse 1, he uses the word latria, which is translated service of worship. This is the way you serve God when you are worshiping him. In the same way that a priest goes into the temple and places an altar, an animal on the altar of God, we are to present our own bodies, which is our spiritual service of worship. Here our service to God is worshipful. It's how we serve God in his presence, in, his, in reverential worship, the presentation of our very selves to the Lord. And the second word is diakonia. We get the word deacon from it. A deacon is a servant. It's used as a waiter of tables. And that's what they were doing in, in Acts chapter 6, serving the widows in the distribution of the food. This is the word that describes our practical service 
And we see it in verse 7 here of the one with the gift of service is, is to serve. If you have the gift of serving, then serve. The literal word is diakonos, deacon. The way I like to put it, a deacon is supposed to deke. <laughs> that, that's literal. A servant is supposed to serve. And we're, we're going to be choosing some deeks here in the near future. <laughs> and so now you know what you're up against. In verse 11, Paul writes, serving the Lord, and here he uses the word that means to be enslaved. And all that slavery means. The verb is duleo, serving. The noun is doulos, which means to be a bond slave. So turn back to the beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, the first verse, where Paul introduces himself to the Romans as a bond servant. Literally, in the Greek, they would just say a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're following the scripture passages in the outline, this is where I'm going to start deviating from the outline. In fact, from here on, on, on until we get towards the very end, the outline doesn't follow the message very well. If you're taking notes, just write it wherever. Or stare at me like you're confused, okay? That I can take. Romans chapter 12, or chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You see, the question here is not, who is Paul? The question, as he blurts it out right off the top, is not who Paul is, but whose Paul is. Whose Paul is? Whom does Paul belong to? And so these three phrases in this first verse are saying, Paul is a slave of one, that is, he's bought by another, he's a slave. Paul is called of one, of another, called, somebody has called him, and he's set apart by another. There's somebody else in this verse, right? And of course, if you read it, you can see it, it's Christ Jesus, but there's somebody else in this verse. It's, it's not about Paul at all. He's just saying, I wrote this, but it's not about me. It's about the one who bought him. It's the one who called him. The one who set him apart. You see, there's someone lurking behind this man. And we know that it is. That is Jesus Christ. It's about him. It's about the one who bought us. It's about the one who called us. It's about the one who set us apart. Our society and culture is all about identity. Who you are, what you can do, your strengths, your abilities your talents, who am I? It just drives me crazy when they're interviewing some athlete or something. He says, I just want to show, showcase my skills, man. You know, it's, 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 all about, it's all about him. But the big question in life is, whose am I? In the 21st century, we get all bent out of shape about self-identity, how we identify ourselves racially, sexual orientation, socially, economically, politically, of course. What is my self-esteem and what is my value in all of that? And what do others think of me and how do others offend me? But when you read the Bible, the huge issue is right relation with God and whom you belong to, whose you are. So let that be the question hanging over this first verse of Romans. Paul and every other believer in Jesus Christ is a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Now, in the first century Roman ears, that was a shocking phrase. 
Why would you want to listen to a guy named Paul who was a slave to somebody else? What can a slave tell you? And why would you want to listen to a guy who's a slave of somebody who's dead? According to the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus, Christ was dead and buried. Historical fact, right? How can Christ be master of anybody? Unless that person's insane. And Paul did say that one time. I speak as if I'm insane. But Paul says, Christ is my master. He is alive. And I am a slave of the risen, living Jesus Christ. So right at the beginning of Romans, everybody who reads this, everybody who's confronted with this, has to decide right now. Are these the rantings of a madman who believes people die, pop out of the grave three days later and become masters of people? Is Paul crazy or possibly did that happen? To use a phrase we used back in the 60s, that's real, man. <laughs> that's real. Because Christ and his resurrection is real. That's reality. And everything else that people propose and live by, that's unreality. That's unreality. In fact, Paul was a double slave. He belonged to Jesus Christ by way of creation, having been created by God. And he belonged to Jesus Christ by recreation because he had been bought off the auction block of sin by Christ. You know, Paul told the Corinthians and told them that as believers in Jesus Christ, they didn't belong to themselves. Remember that? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, the 19th verse. The 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul asked an important question. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Reality. Christian, you don't belong to you. Why not? Verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus paid for you with the price of his shed blood on the cross. You don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus. What does Paul mean when he says he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus? He means that he is bought by Jesus, owned by Jesus, ruled by Jesus. Bought by Jesus, owned by Jesus, ruled by Jesus. Now, to be ruled by Jesus means that we no longer live trying to please other people, trying to please other men. And where do I get that? You don't need to turn to it, but Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Paul asks, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Am I trying to please men? If I'm still a people pleaser, am I trying to please men? Then, then I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. If I'm trying to seek their favor, if I want them to think the best about me. But Paul says, but I am the bondservant of Christ. And let me paraphrase this. I don't give a rip about pleasing men. Unless, Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 2, it might lead them to please my master. If I can please men in a way that will lead them to please my master, he says, we are to please our neighbor for his good, to his edification, 
that he might glorify God. So finally, we come to point five in the outline. Don't ask me what happened to points three and four. You might have found it in there someplace. Serving the Lord means that we serve the one who loved us and gave himself for us while we were yet sinners. He is the Lord of glory who gave up the splendor of heaven to endure the abuse of sinners in order to bring us to glory. You know, it's a great pleasure to to serve, a great privilege to serve this gracious, loving God. And, And it's not a burdensome thing, but a joy to serve the King of Kings. You know, if you had the opportunity to get the job of your life and serve the person that you thought the most of, you know, of all people, and and you could just be in his presence and serve him, especially if he sacrificed himself to rescue you from condemnation, man, you would just hasten in diligence, be able to serve in that way. William Carey is considered the father of modern missions, and he was the pioneer Baptist missionary to India you know, served in India faithfully six, seven years before there's even one convert in India. Translated the Bible into five or six different languages uh, that are spoken in India. And William Carey had a son by the name of Felix. And Felix resigned from the mission to accept a prestigious position as Burma's ambassador to the British government in India. Very prestigious, a very high-ranking position. And William Carey deeply lamented this and wrote to Andrew Fuller, who was a Baptist pastor friend of his back in England. And he says, Felix has shriveled from a missionary into an ambassador. (laughs) Isn't that a good way to look at earthly position and things? Felix has shriveled from a missionary into an ambassador. William Carey knew what a privilege it is to serve the King of Kings. So how should we serve the Lord? First, we make sure that our motivation is right. You serve him because of his great mercies towards you in the gospel. And that motivation moves you not to be lazy, but diligent in serving him. Serving Christ becomes your passion so that you do it fervently. And remember that you're, not, that you're serving none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, there was a a successful Southern California doctor who met Jesus Christ, who came to Christ and knew the forgiveness of his sins and trusted in him. And this doctor left his lucrative practice to serve in a very primitive country. And his non-Christian partner couldn't believe that he would do this. And so on one of his trips around the world, this partner stopped by to see his former partner, the Christian doctor, And the Christian doctor was performing surgery on a poor woman in a very primitive circumstance. And the non-Christian doctor asked, Don't you remember how much you would have made doing this surgery in Southern California? And he said, Yes, many thousands. Then why are you doing it? He said, Several reasons. See her clenched fist. In it there are several coins that she will give to the mission. See those kids in the other room? They will be forever grateful if I can save their mother's life. But there's one more thing. My hope is to receive from the Lord someday those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Shall we pray?
Father, we once again thank you for all that you have done for, for each one of us, Father. What a blessing, what a joy to hear some of those test or hear those testimonies this morning, Lord. And Father, we we thank you. There just aren't words that express. There are no works that we can do to express. But Father, we thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you work in us and through us for your glory. And Father, we do look forward to that day when we do hear your words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And in this we do pray, in Jesus' name, amen.